If you would, would you please turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 36. So we return for our final time in the book of Numbers, and we go to the last chapter in Numbers, Numbers chapter 36. I've really enjoyed going through this series and looking sporadically at the book of Numbers, uh, this often neglected book. And so if you haven't been with us, the story of Numbers is the story of Israel in the wilderness. They've gone out from the exile, or the exodus, that is, of Egypt. And they've spent 40 years in the desert wandering before they are to enter into the promised land. And so it's a story that's marked by rebellion. It's a story that's remarked by, or marked by God's provision. It's a story of an unfaithful people and an unfaithful God. And the message is actually quite simple of all of numbers. It's trust and obey God. Place your faith in Him and things are going to be okay. Or don't and perish. And that's exactly what happens to the first generation in the wilderness. They did not place their trust in God, and they perished. And so the first part of the book is about this rebellious generation. They did not get to enter into the promised land. And then so two weeks ago, we looked at Numbers 21, and it's the first part of the second generation, the generation that was marked by faith. And we have that episode of the venomous snakes and Moses lifting up the bronze serpent for them to look at and to be healed. And so there's been a lot that's happened, 15 chapters have happened between where we were two weeks ago and where we are today. And so just to catch us back up to speed a little bit before we read the passage, right after that passage with the serpents, we have this, this chronicle of Balaam, this guy who was going to curse Israel, and every time he opened his mouth, just blessings fell out. In fact, Numbers 24, this is a good little primer for the Advent season, is an oracle, it's the final oracle of Balaam, and it talks about Jesus, actually. It's looking forward to Jesus coming, starting in verse 15, the greatest blessing that's to come. So maybe you want to read that this week in preparation for Advent. But in chapter 26, there's a new census taken. That's where the book title, Numbers, comes from. Numbers 1, there's a census. Well, now there's a new census. There's a new generation in chapter 26, the new census. And so here we are, the new generation. They're more obedient to God than the rebellious generation before them. They're on the edge of the promised land. They're looking across the river at Canaan, at Jericho. And so the remainder of the books is laws and instructions for them of how they're supposed to live once they get to the promised land. And so then we come to our chapter this morning. Um, it comes right off the hills of how they're dividing up the land and the promised land amongst the tribes of Israel. And so it's the final chapter of Numbers, and it may strike you this morning as a bizarre ending to this book. But actually, I think it's a pretty fitting ending to the wilderness saga. So let's dive in this morning and see what I mean by that. If you'll read, follow along with me, Numbers chapter 36. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. The heads of the fathers' houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, 
then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. And Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of all the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father." so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses, for Malah, Tirzah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And that ends God's word. That ends the book of Numbers. Would you pray with me as we seek God's help to understand this bizarre passage? Father, you're the God who gives inheritances to us. And as we read earlier from 1 Peter, that even we have an inheritance that's being uh, kept up for us in heaven. But Father, as we dive into your word this morning, this seems like a bizarre passage for us. Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be present with us, to teach us this morning. Father, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your word this morning. Father, we ask that you would teach us. We ask that you show us your son, Jesus. We pray this in the name of him. Amen. So growing up, I was not a very avid reader. I read a little bit. I read what I had to read for school. I even tried Harry Potter for a little while and Lord of the Rings, but those were um, really short attempts at reading those. But what I had read growing up was not really complicated. It was all straightforward stuff that all had happy endings, uh, story-driven. I read nothing of nonfiction. It was all fiction. There weren't many twists and turns, and it was the kind of reading that was predictable, that you knew what was going to happen by the end of the story. There was never really any discomfort that I ever felt while reading these stories. But I remember the first book that I read that really bothered me. I was in high school, I don't remember what grade, and I was assigned to read George Orwell's 1984. And I loved the story of Winston, this guy who's standing up to the man, you know. The government, big brother, is oppressive over him, and they're rewriting history, they're controlling society. Even thoughts are monitored by the thought police. This dystopian society, this future, and I I was invested in it, I, I enjoyed it. And you remember in the story, Winston, he's able to get his hands on a diary, which were outlawed, and he's able to start writing down his thoughts. 
And then he meets a girl and he falls in love and it's the story of great resistance against great odds. The kind of stories that I like. And so it was a really enjoyable read for me, 1984 was, until I got to the ending of the book. You see, I'm used to happy endings. I'm used to, I'm used to the guy, the straightforward ending. I knew how the book would end, that Winston and Good would triumph. Winston would get the girl and they'd live happily ever after. But that doesn't happen in 1984. It's been out for 50 years, if you didn't know the ending, I'm sorry. But that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. That's not how the book ends. He gets captured. There is no happily ever after. He gets captured and he's tortured and he's brainwashed. And then he gets released back into society and he sees this image of Big Brother and he feels a sense of love for him. And that's how the book ends. It's like antithetical to everything I ever thought. I was like, this is such a great story. And then that ending is just terrible, right? Why did it end like that? I remember thinking, I remember telling my friends that I went from loving the book to hating it. And it was all because of this seemingly bizarre ending. Well, now that I'm older and hopefully a little bit smarter, uh, I realize the reason why Orwell ended the book that way is because he was trying to make a point. He was trying to make a point. It wasn't a mistake. It was intentional. And I think that connects with our passage this morning because we've been following the story of Israel in the wilderness and we've seen rebellion, right? We've seen the new generation act in faith. We see them preparing to enter the promised land. Then we get all these rules and these laws for how they're supposed to live in the promised land. And then we get into chapter 36, fully expecting to enter the promised land and conquer what God's given them. Then out of nowhere, we get this passage about Zelophehad's daughters. It's like, what? How is this the ending to this story of numbers? We're kind of left scratching our heads. And so we're left with the same question this morning. Is this just a bizarre ending to a book? Or is there something more going on here like Orwell in 1984? Is there a point being made by this story of Zalofa had and his daughters? Or is it just weird? So what I want to argue this morning is that this passage is actually a very fitting end to this book of Numbers. And so I want to approach our passage kind of like concentric circles this morning. We're going to look at the context of the passage, right? We're going to, we're going to see what happens in the passage. Then I want to kind of zoom out a little bit, okay? And look at what's happening in the context of the whole life of Israel. Then we're going to zoom out even more and look at this passage in light of our own lives. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And so we'll see that by three points this morning. We're going to look at the conundrum, the conclusion, and the cross. The conundrum, the conclusion, and the cross. So let's look at our first point this morning, the conundrum. And so to understand this passage, we need to look back at Numbers 27, okay? And we need to know a little bit about ancient Near Eastern culture. So keep in mind, the concept of the land is all about numbers, right? They're going towards the promised land. The land is central in the book of Numbers. And so the reason why they're wandering the desert is because they have no land. They're trying to get to the land. And so there is a land that's promised them. But during this time period, women didn't typically inherit land, Property and land would be passed down to male heirs in order to keep land within the family, as we read so many times throughout the passage, while women would receive large dowries at their wedding from their father. And so in Numbers 27, we're actually first introduced to Zelophehad's daughters. And so these are godly, amazing women. They went to Moses and they asked that they would inherit their father's land because their father had passed away and they had no brothers that the land would be passed down to. 
And so in response to their faith, in response to them asking if they would inherit the land, God rewards these women and he says that they could inherit their father's land. First time this has ever happened. And this goes for any woman in this situation in Israel. And so this is important so that land could stay within families that it was given to. If there was no one to give the land to, it would be given to the daughters. And so here's where the conundrum is raised in Numbers 36. Here's where this problem comes about because of this. Gilead, who's one of the family heads, he comes to Moses with the problem, and he says this. He says, and we can actually see it in verses 2 and 3, that if these daughters were to marry someone outside of their tribe of Manasseh, that the land would go with them out of the tribe. So when they married, they would marry into another family, and that land would go with them into that other family, and it would be taken away from the family tribe of Manasseh. So the context of this is that there's 12 tribes of Israel, and each tribe is given a portion of the land. And this is going to just make for a mess, is what Gilead is saying. And so there would be a jumbled mess of lands. You could have, like, in the middle of Mississippi, if Jackson was Alabama, it would be totally surrounded, Right? And so that's what they're trying to avoid. They're trying to keep these clear lines of structure in Israel that inheritance will go to who it's supposed to go to. And so chapter 34 of Numbers goes to great lengths to to establish these divisions. And so you can have a situation where tribes would inherit the land of other tribes. And so Gilead also rightly brings up that how even in the year of Jubilee... They wouldn't be able to resolve this dispute. All you need to know about the year of Jubilee is that every 50 years, all land that was sold and traded would go back to its original owners. So if the, woman's, if the women were to marry outside of their tribe, even the year of Jubilee would not bring the land back into the original tribe. And so that's the situation that's going on here. That's the conundrum that they're faced. You've given us this new law, God, but we see there's a contradiction We see that there's a problem that's arisen. And so one thing I want to note is that this is exactly how it should have happened. We already start to see this new generation acting out in faith. When they have a problem, they go to Moses, right? And he brings back an answer from the Lord, and we see the answer in verse 6. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. And so here's God's solution to this problem. He says, these women can marry anyone they want to, except it has to be within their own tribe. That way, the land that God gave them would remain in the tribes that he gave it to. And so we see in verse 10 that they do exactly that. And then there's a a podcast called the Bible Recap Podcast. This is what they say. They say, good news, they all married their cousins. And it doesn't sound like good news, but it was back then. And so that's how the problem is solved. All the land is able to remain in the tribes in the way that God had designed. But I want to point out two things about this, even in the immediate context that we can glean from this passage. If we had been reading Numbers, the last 35 chapters, one thing that would stand out to us is that there's no rebellion, there's no protest, there's no attempt to overthrow the leaders and go back to Egypt. But what we find is obedience. There's a submission to the Lord here that is different from 30 chapters before it. This is a new generation. There's a new faithfulness. There's obedience. And isn't this what God wanted all along from the Israelites 
obedience to trust the Lord. He's brought you this far. Why would he leave you out in the desert? Just trust the Lord. And so this is a huge point of application for us, for you and I. When things get tough, when things get rough, when we have problems and conundrums and and issues in our own lives, where do we turn? Philippians 1.6 says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do we trust that God is going to finish what he started in our own lives? Second thing that we can get from this is that God cares about his people. God actually cares about his people. There's a nation of Israel, two to three million people at this time, and yet God cared about these five women and their request. And he cares about you too, so much that while he's devoting power to like keeping the stars flung up in the universe, that he knows the amount of hairs that are on your head, right? He cares about us on an intimate level. And so if you've ever felt alone or misunderstood or unlovable, we can lift up our heads and we can know that the Lord over all the universe cares about you. First Peter 5, 7 explicitly says that. It says God cares for you. And so he changed the law for these five women. What might he do for you? And so that's the conundrum. That's the situation that's going on here in Numbers 36. And so God provides a solution for them. Let's look at our second point, the conclusion. Now, I don't want to confuse you. When I say conclusion, I don't mean this is the conclusion to my sermon, but rather how the passage is a fitting conclusion to the end of Numbers. And so just, I want to apologize if you're already thinking about lunch. This is only the second point, so I'm sorry. But I'll try to be brief on this. So the conclusion, one thing I've said already is that I'm convinced that this is a fitting ending to the book of Numbers. And so if you remember, Numbers is this gradual, gradual push towards the promised land. There's a gradual movement towards the promised land. And in our passage this morning, it solidifies that every tribe of Israel is going to get its inheritance in the promised land. But it also marks this pivotal moment in the life of Israel. So these daughters of Zelophehad are representative of the posture of all of Israel. This whole generation, it's a generation that's marked by faith. It's a generation that's marked by obedience. And so this generation is literally in between two worlds, okay? So they look backwards and they see their previous generation of rebellion. They also see the promises of God that brought them to where they are. But yet they're able to look forward to to the future fulfillment of God's promises ahead of them. They're at this crossroads. They're in between two different stages of life. The stage where they used to be rebellious to the stage of the future fulfillment that they're going to get the promised land. And so we can see this by looking back at Numbers 1. In Numbers 1, we never read it, but there's this order and this structure of how the camp is supposed to be set up. And it's all centered around with God at the center, right? And there's order and structure to the camp. And so we see there's a return back to order and structure with each tribe getting its full inheritance that's assigned to it. We can also look even further back than Numbers 1 and go back to Genesis 15, when Abraham was promised that he would grow into a nation that it couldn't be counted, that they would be given a land to dwell in. All that's about to happen, right? They've already grown into a nation that you can't count. There's millions of people, and they're about to enter into the promised land. They're on the edge of fulfilling that promise as they await the Lord's instruction. And so one commentator draws this comparison. He says, this new generation seems not simply to be descended physically from Abraham, but also in a profound sense to be Abraham's spiritual sons and daughters, ready to live by faith in the word of God. And so we have this great sense of hope for Israel when we read this. We're like, they're there. 
They're going to make it. They're going to get to the promised land. Everything's going to be good. It's going to work out just fine. But it's also at this place that we can look forward, right? We just look back. We can look forward, too, that God, though he's promised the land, and though they're right on the doorstep, they've yet to actually possess the land, right? They have all these laws of how they're divided up the land and how they're to live in the land, and yet they don't even have the land yet. It's not theirs. They've not crossed the Jordan. They've not even gone into Jericho, and the walls have not fallen yet. But they have this new generation. Moses and Aaron, they're gone. Joshua's the new leader. And so we see throughout the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua that God is faithful to his promises, that they make it into the land. It becomes theirs. This generation went on to the land with faith, and God handed it to them. And then we get to another place where the story of Israel could end, and they lived happily ever after. Right? The Bible, the Old Testament, it ends with Joshua. But they don't do that. This generation is more of an anomaly here. They had faith, they entered the land. But they don't live happily ever after. As time continued on, generation after generation fell away from the Lord. And so this generation of Zelophehad's daughters, they're the exception. Because Israel after them and Israel before them is one that is marked by disobedience. It's one that's marked by unbelief. So much so that Israel's story ends in 2 Kings with them being kicked out of the land and they're in exile. They've lost their inheritance. How far have they fallen? And so why do I bring this up? Why do I bring up this context of Israel and where we look down at Zelophehad's daughters in this generation? Why bring up this larger historical narrative? Well, it's because even in the unfaithfulness of Israel, God is preserving for himself a remnant of that unfaithful people. And they're waiting for their inheritance So many books of the Bible talk about this. Ezekiel, Zechariah, Micah, Isaiah, Joel, Ezra, Jeremiah, Amos, and there's others, Daniel. They all talk about a remnant that is being preserved out of this unbelieving Israel that would be receiving an inheritance. Now, what do you mean by this, this this fullness of an inheritance? So if you have your Bibles open, flip over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Probably a verse, a passage that you've read before. But in Jeremiah verse 31, it's talking about the remnant. So Jeremiah brings up the remnant in Jeremiah 14. And so he's talking about the remnant, and this is what he says about the remnant of Israel and their inheritance. Verse 31 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. By the way, just remember, in Jeremiah, they're in exile. They've been kicked out of the promised land. This is this is thousands of years after Zelophehad's daughters. So behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, talking about the people in Numbers. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So there's a new covenant, and this is what it is. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor in each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so what this passage is saying is that God is going to bring his people back to himself. 
But it's not just a blanket covering of Israel, but it's a remnant. It's the true believers, the true people who have faith. And he's saying that he's going to do it, right? Not Israel. God is going to bring them back to himself. But most importantly is how he's going to do this. How is he going to bring them back to himself? Well, there would be one who would come that would restore them their forfeited inheritance. And that leads us to our last point, the cross. The cross. And this is where our passage, Numbers 36, becomes very applicable to us. We are just like Israel. We're sinners. We're often filled with unbelief. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That's that very same punishment that the unbelievers in Israel experienced in, in earlier in Numbers. They experienced death because of their unbelief. But we're also, like the people in Numbers here, is that we're people who live by faith. Right? This generation is one marked by faith. We are a generation that is marked by faith. But it's not faith in our own actions. It's not faith in our own strength. It's not faith in our own ability to provide for ourselves like the old generation did. It's faith in Jesus Christ who took our sin upon himself and paid the price for the inheritance that we're to receive through his death on the cross. And so through Jesus' death, Jesus has restored our relationship with God and has brought us back to him. And so here's the amazing thing about living in this current moment right now is that unlike Israel, we don't anticipate this happening. Right? We, don't, we don't look forward to this happening. It's already happened. We can look back and see that it's actually already happened, that on the cross, victory has been won for all who believe, right? It's certain, it's done, it's already happened. And so if you're in Christ this morning, there's an inheritance awaiting you. Did you catch it, what Rob pointed out in the comfort, that inheritance that's waiting for us, that comfort of the gospel? It's in our bulletin, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. And so for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's this land that's eternal, it's pure, it's never fading away, and it's being kept safe for his people. But we aren't there yet. Right, Just as Israel looks across the Jordan and they see that the promised land has been given to them, but they haven't actually possessed it yet. Right, It's already been bought. Jesus has already died on the cross, but we have not yet gotten that inheritance. We've not yet made it to our promised land. And so just like Zelophehad's daughters and the faithful generation, we're at this in-between place. Right? We're at this in-between place where we can look back at the work of the cross and see that salvation was accomplished. We can look back at Jesus' death and see that our sins have been paid for. We can look back at his resurrection and know that death, that wages of sin, has been defeated. We can look back and know that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all did so that no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's why it's secure for us, is because he did it. Not you, not me, Jesus did it. And so this salvation, it doesn't rest on what we've done, but it rests on what Christ has done. 
And because of this, we can sing these wonderful words from one of the best worship songs written in the last few years. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, I can sing, I am free yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's all on the work of Christ at the cross. But at the same time, we look forward to the day in which Jesus comes back and he makes all things new. We pray each week in the Lord's Prayer that his will be done and that things on earth will be as they are in heaven, that he makes all things new. That day when our lifelong struggle with sin is overcome, the day when our struggle with unbelief is no more, where we see clearly And so to loosely quote Mark Futado, one of my seminary professors, the battle has been won, salvation has been achieved, but there's more to come. You're already forgiven. We've already won. But yet there's going to be a fuller fulfillment that is to come for us. And so where does that leave us this morning? How how are we to live in this tension of being able to look back, but yet we're not all the way there yet? How do we live in the midst of the struggle with sin and unbelief? Well, we need to be like Zelophehad's daughters. We need to live by faith, and we do so confidently in light of the cross, in light of what's already been done for us. For them, their challenge was marriage and inheritance. But for us, our challenges and temptations are many. And so make no mistake, we are at war with our sin. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We're at war with our sin, and so each of us, we face different temptations. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's sexual temptation. Maybe it's peer pressure at school. Idolatry of a sports team, or or politics, or or being admired by everyone, or, or something else. And we could sit here all day and list different temptations that we all experience and face. But whatever our temptations are, whatever your specific temptations are, how are we to get through this life with those temptations? How are we to get through life with so many temptations? And and so I want to give you one encouragement this morning. One source of strength to get you through this life and the tension that we live in between these two worlds. We find it in our passage today. We look at that structure and the reason why um, the inheritance of the land is important because there's order and structure brought about for Israel. And so, so families and tribes could be kept together in a community that was centered around God. And so this is a huge lesson for us that we need to surround ourselves and belong to a community of faith like the church. We need other Christians to come alongside of us, to help us raise our kids, to help us to fight temptation, to keep pointing us to Jesus. We need others around us. There's a community. And I love what Ian Duguid says. He says, there's no place for lone rangers in the wilderness, striking out on their own with confidence in their own abilities to reach heaven unaccompanied. There's no room for lone rangers. We need each other. We need the church. And so we need to be a part of a church, around other Christians, taking hold of the means of the grace, hearing the gospel preached weekly through the word, participating in the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, praying with and for fellow believers, and fellowshipping with them. 
I don't know, for some people, this kind of relationship is really hard and it's difficult and it can be messy, but it's necessary for us and the scriptures actually encourage it. It, it, asks, it asks us to be a part of other people's lives. And so when we close this little mini-series on numbers, here's the final challenge that numbers presents to us. is to live by faith. It doesn't mean that the life in between these two worlds is going to be easy, but living by faith looks like that old Heidelberg Catechism that we say often. Relying on Jesus is our only hope in life and death, and awaiting and looking forward to the inheritance that he's set aside for us, that he's keeping secure. And so if there's anything at all that we can learn from the book of Numbers is that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And so I want to let Ian do good, get one last word in this morning. He says, the wilderness is not the end of the story. The trials and difficulties of our earthly existence are not all there is. The future belongs to the Lord and to his Christ and to all whom he has called to be his. It is promised to all who persevere by faith in Christ, and it will assuredly be given to them on the last day. The Lord is faithful. He will do it. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing a song that summarizes this perfectly. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And so my question for you this morning is where do you turn when you're in the midst of the wilderness? When you're in the midst of dangers and toils and snares? And have you experienced this grace that keeps you safe and the grace that leads you home. Let's pray.